0: Now, on this Invest Talk Podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions. Starting to learn more about value stocks rather than gross stocks. You guys are saving me a lot of money. Looking into Johnson and Johnson, and if you have time, could you just tell a little bit of the difference between
1: Coca-Cola and Johnson and
0: Johnson? And provides unbiased answers. All
1: right. Well, you're looking at historical blue chip names. Both companies have been around many, many decades through many, many different investment cycles and market cycles, economic cycles, and they've endured. Their brands have endured, uh, their products have endured. Now the question is, should you be buying them?
0: Invest Talk, over 41 million downloads and counting. Across America and around the world, your participation makes it unique. 888-99-CHART
2: this podcast is produced by kpp financial steve peasley president kpp financial independent thinking shared success and now today's podcast
1: good afternoon fellow investors and welcome back to invest talk this is our may 18th 2022 edition i'm justin klein and i'm excited for this hour with you give you unbiased answers to your finance and investment questions. And my goal here is to help you understand the current market environment that we're in, how to try to avoid the pitfalls uh, that a volatile market tends to exacerbate. When the market's going up, the old saying is a rising tide lifts all boats. And even if you are making mistakes, you can still make money because rising asset values are going to benefit most things. But when liquidity becomes more scarce, when the economy is slowing, the mistakes that you make are exacerbated. They are magnified. And that's why you need to have the proper perspective, understand your risk level. And once again, understand the current market environment. If you have to look at the big picture, demographics around the world are becoming more challenging. Baby boomers are retiring in mass. You have China with a demographic issue that is now reversing, meaning their population is shrinking. And then you have deglobalization, which is reversing the disinflationary force that has been the hallmark of our global economy for the better part of three decades. Just-in-time inventory is no longer the end all be all resilient supply chains, resilient inventory is more and more crucial as we head into a multipolar world. And then you have ESG climate concerns, all of those things. And reactions have ramifications for the global economy, for particular sectors, for the market as a whole. And so being prepared for this shift is vital. Otherwise, you're going to bleed away any gains that you've earned over the past many years. So the root of your decision-making will rest on understanding what is in front of you, not the past. You don't drive your car looking through the rearview mirror, do you? You drive your car looking through the windshield and what's out in front of you. And that's the same with investing. So as we emerge from the post-COVID world, it's important for you to have your... Feet on the ground, looking at the reality of the situation and investing accordingly. Investing for this new market environment. So I'm going to do my best to give you the tools and help drive you towards good decision making that will provide you with a comfortable financial future. In this podcast, I'm going to operate with my mission statement, which is always independent thinking and shared success. So no matter what I'm talking about, the market as a whole, a particular sector, a particular strategy, I'm here to present it all without bias. Give you the facts as I see them, and applying those to 20 plus years of investment experience. So you can call with right now during our live stream program from four to five Pacific Time. Or you can leave a question on our InvestTalk Voice Bank. Either way, the number never changes. It's still 888-99-CHART. So let's get right to our first listener question now.
0: Hi, Duncan from New York. Just wanted to leave a quick question. Thank you for all that you do. Starting to learn more about value stocks rather than growth stocks. You guys are saving me a lot of money. Looking into Johnson & Johnson, company that makes money, just looking for an entry point to and if you have time, could you just tell a little bit of the difference between Coca-Cola and Johnson and Johnson, but, uh, thank you very much and have a great day. Bye.
1: All right. Well, you're looking at historical blue chip names. Both companies been around many, many decades through many, many different investment cycles and market cycles, economic cycles, and they've endured. Their brands have endured, their business models have endured, uh, their products have endured. Now, the question is, should you be buying them in this environment? Sure, they're not growth stocks, they're blue chip stocks, but are they cheap enough? Well, Coke had a big down day. A lot of it had to do with consumer staples as a whole, struggling because what happened with uh, Target, Walmart recently, and that's taken on the chin. The issue though, uh, is I think a lot of people have huddled into quote, unquote, low volatility ETFs and buying a lot of these companies that are typically lower volatility, like Coke and Johnson and Johnson. And they're both trading at now at pretty high multiples historically. So I would say both of these companies are expensive, but they're very different, right? Johnson and Johnson is healthcare. Very, uh, both are, are non-cyclical, but different types of businesses. Now, which one am I picking? Well, enterprise value to EBITDA on Johnson and Johnson is about 16 and a half. Historically, it's not cheap until it gets to low teens, 13 or so. Now it's at 16 and a half. So it's not quite there yet. Okay. So that makes me say, be patient on it, probably another 10 to to 20% lower on Johnson & Johnson. And that would put the price closer to the lows from earlier this year, right around 150. 150, 155, that area, I think that's reasonable valuation. On Coke, if you look at what's happening there, that's trading at even higher multiples. Uh, Enterprise value to EBITDA is 20, and historically, That's also um, fairly high. It doesn't get cheap until you get into the the mid teens. Uh, And you see that big drop today. Uh, So I'd be patient on both, but I think Coke, or sorry, Johnson Johnson is closer to a buy point than Coke. This is Invest Talk. We're moving into a break, and I'm ready for your questions now at 888.99 chart.
0: Why do listener questions make Invest Talk better?
3: One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. So as long as your questions involve the stock market or general investment topics and definitions, we set no limits. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Justin and I are ready. Are you? Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888-99-CHART.
1: Now, my focus point today is based on this question. What's behind the crypto sell-off? And the fear factor is pretty high right now in the crypto markets. But most newer investors have actually lost money now. Not a shock, similar to the ARK funds, right, where everyone chases returns. Uh, it's turned bad for a lot of newer investors. So we're going to look into that story and then a look at early stage tech startups and VC investors and what's now changed over the past few months in regards to those type of companies, where are layoffs going to be concentrated? How might that affect the broader market and valuations as a whole? Also SPACs, remember SPACs and them being this hot topic, hot uh, investment theme just um, a year ago. Well, that's shifting. And there's a lot of money sitting there waiting to be deployed in the in the SPAC space. And it'll be uh, I want to look at that story. So it gives you a sense of, uh, you know, what kind of dry powder is out there to buy those private companies. And then lastly, how does how much has the how much economic weakness has the market priced in already so we're going to look at that as well but let's take a look at the market today we had a bloody bloody day uh we had a, a rebound over the past few trading days off of uh, a pretty hectic low just uh, back on what day was that is that Thursday yeah. Thursday was kind of the reversal Friday. You had some follow through pause day on Monday and then more upside yesterday. And almost all of that. Yep. All of those last three days of trading have been reversed. And we're basically back to where we were, at least on the S and P uh, at the close on Thursday. And you can just see that volatility uh, That remember volatility. On the downside is a lot swifter. Uh, and it continues to be a rotation out of value, sorry, out of growth and into value. For example, today, large cap growth down 5%, 5.13. Large cap value only down about a little over 3%. So you can see that stark difference continue bleeding out of those large cap tech names. Now, we are in option X week, and you often see this type of volatility. A lot of games being played uh there's what is called max pain on option dealers where these option dealers they try to push the market around so that when positions expire those who are short the positions profit the most and so there's a lot of games that are played there so odds are good we're going to stay around the 4000 uh, mark on the S&P for the rest of the, the week Right now, we close at 39.23. So, you know, some choppiness is is probably likely for the the next uh, couple of days. And then going into the final uh, week of the month, you're likely to have equity buying due to rebalancing within uh, funds that, when equities are underperforming, End of the month they, they buy a little bit uh in order to up their allocation and vice versa when equity is doing well they tend to sell going into the end of the month vice and vice versa so you t- typically get that action into month end now oh, there's still a lot of fear there's a lot of cash on on uh in brokerage accounts and a lot of i think what you're seeing is spillover from crypto that feeds into tech stocks, because most people own tech, own uh, or own crypto, own tech stocks, that feeds into downside market activity, uh, and, and, and dealer hedging and, and things like that, that, that certainly drive near term volatility. So that's what you're seeing overall, the earnings picture, at least for the first quarter was pretty good, for the most part. Uh, so when you, when you look at that backdrop, you'd say a bounce is probably more likely over the next four to six weeks. But technicals are still in downtrend overall for most sectors. Not all sectors, but most sectors. 8899 chart, 88992 4278 is how you get through and ask your question on today's show. Now, we have good news for Invest Talk listeners that enjoy hearing unbiased answers to caller questions at a faster pace. We have an all new April rapid fire hour with 30 questions in a row. Available for free download over at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, as well as InvestTalk.com. So please tell your friends about the InvestTalk Rapid Fire Hour podcast. And now, the phone lines are open for you at 888-99-SHARK.
0: InvestTalk is always made better when our listeners contribute their questions.
1: Now my focus point today is based on this question, what's behind the crypto sell-off? And if you look at the numbers, 40% of Bitcoin investors are now underwater on their investments. 40. Think about that. Think about how much crypto or Bitcoin's gone up over the past decade and then realize that almost half of them of the investors that have, that have bought Bitcoin are underwater are losing money. Now it still has the largest market cap in the space, but it's lost over half its value in just span of a few weeks. November is at 69,000. Now we're hanging right around 29,000. And what's I think most shocking to people within that industry, not to me though, is that it's very highly correlated to high growth tech stocks. And the whole idea was always oh this is a non-correlated asset. The problem is is that when everybody is crowded into the same trades and their portfolios look broadly similar you have a snowball effect. What happened with Terra USD and breaking the buck there? the algorithm stable coin backed by nothing more than an algorithm. Uh, and you start to see those within that space dump uh, Luna, which is its associated coin. Uh, and then the, uh, the holders uh, that that are backed by um, a Terra. Uh, they've dumped a ton of Bitcoin, about I think it was what was the data? Something like 30, 30 billion dollars worth. And so there's contagion effect there, to where losses in one portfolio start to feed into selling of other assets like Bitcoin. And then people that are leveraged have to cover and delever themselves. And sometimes they sell other crypto. Sometimes they sell other things that they have to sell to meet margin requirements. And oftentimes that stock in Amazon or in Netflix or in Facebook. You pick the high flying tech stock that's now down 50, 60, 70%. A lot of the people that owned or do own those names. Also, own a lot of crypto. So, when volatility, and this is the lesson here the lesson is when volatility increases, correlations increase. Remember that. When volatility increases, correlations increase. Because, once again, margin calls. Doesn't matter whether you want to sell it. Oftentimes, markets move because. Things have to be sold or have to be bought. One of the reasons why these companies, these large tech companies, became so big in market cap is because people indexing. And it was kind of a self-fulfilling uh, feedback me- mechanism where as they went up in value and they become a bigger part of the indices and more money put, people put more money in the indices – Well, more of each dollar is going to be put towards those bigger names and they continue to go up and up and up and they get bigger each and every day as more money flows into the indices. So it's reflexive in that way. But now what's happening is it's reflexive the other way, meaning as people take money out of the indices, those are the names that actually get sold the most. Works the other way, so remember reflexivity works in both directions. All right. Let's go to Jason in Chicago, looking at NCLH, which is Norwegian Cruise Lines.
3: Yes, hi,
1: Justin. How are you? Doing well. What are you? Why are you? Why are you thinking about Norwegian? Um, <clears throat> it's something I've been watching for quite a while, and I was just
0: going to get your opinion on um, is now a good time to start investing into the travel sector um i like norwegian cruise lines i've been watching them for quite a while um they seem to be pretty low priced i know they're not sailing at 100 uh, percent capacity yet mm-hmm. but uh I mean, myself included i have a cruise scheduled in the fall and um i just think people are ready to go out and start enjoying life again um do you think it's a good time to invest in that
1: sector well i do i do like the sector overall the issue in general is with cruise lines is yes, people want to get out, but are they going to start with a cruise? Uh, is that their first thing out? Probably not. And I think it's going to take a while for a lot of travelers to really get excited about cruising. Uh, so I think it's kind of a long slog uh, for these type of companies. And then you have economy weakening a bit. So Less money in their brokerage accounts in order to cash out and go uh, on a cruise, for example. And so, and and, and then you have the technical backdrop, it's pretty pat. So, to me, this looks like it's headed back to pandemic lows around eight bucks. At eight bucks, seems, you know, I I think it's a good longer term bet, but you're going to have to deal with the volatility. So, right now, I would not be buying it. I think it's a good one to have on your watch list, though. Thanks for the call. We're heading into a break, so give me a call. This is Invest Best Talk at 888-99-SHARK. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. Have you heard about Risk Riskalyze?
0: It's a brief question and answer form that you fill out online. Steve Peasley and Justin Klein will also get a copy of your responses they can use the Riskalyze results to help you formulate a strategy that fits your investing risk tolerance. Learn more anytime and take the Riskalyze quiz at investtalk.com. Hello, Steve and Justin. This is Sean from Anaheim again. I just wanted to say thank you. You have a great podcast. And I had a couple questions that were tied together. I've been unloading some stocks with the intention of repurchasing them sort of doing some lost harvesting and one of those stocks that i got rid of and now it seems like it's a better entry point is p-o-a-h-y porsche and i'm interested in what you guys feel is a good entry point and your analysis on this uh, particular
1: stock again that's porsche p-o-a-h-y thank you all right this is Porsche, Porsche, if you want to say it correctly. Uh, I I know that because I had one and I said Porsche and I was corrected many times. (laughs) Um, But this is basically more of a play though on Volkswagen. And, you know, so you're getting exposure, I think in a cheaper way. Um, So I think if you want to buy Volkswagen, it's actually probably better to buy Porsche, um, because the valuation multiples are a lot better. And so long-term, I like it because I like Volkswagen and their ability to pivot and, and earn a profit and their historical uh, expertise at producing all types of cars, uh, but being ahead of the traditional ones in electric vehicles. And they have the scale to make a difficult, uh, a difficult transition doable, uh, and they're, they're doing that. So I like what you're talking about uh, now that I would just simply use the technicals here because the f- technicals near term look very poor. The next big support level is honestly around $6 and 59 cents. Now we're at 743. So you're still talking about 30% lower from here. That's where I'd pick it up $5, $6 and call it 60 cents. Thanks for the call. Now let's touch a bit on the tech industry as a whole, not just public tech, because that's less interesting to me. It's private tech. And this is where most of the misallocation of capital has been concentrated. And a lot of high-flying tech startups are now getting grounded very fast. It's a new climate with higher interest rates, higher inflation. You're having more layoffs investors are a lot more skeptical and valuations are coming down in a big, big way. Now we know the NASDAQ is down about 25% from its high in November, but this that, that's being echoed in magnitudes in the private market. Now venture capitalists are now rebuking high sky valuations. They're demanding companies spend less and improve their margins. Crazy, right? Refocusing on profitability over growth. Remember it was all about growth, not about profitability. And this is getting these, these, uh, these small private companies to start laying off people, cut marketing expenses, cancel projects. They're trying to make their money last. And really what this is, it's the cycle, it's the end of this cycle. And frankly, this is a good thing. This is cleansing. And it's it's putting these companies that have gotten funding back on a more sustainable path because growth at the expense of profitability is not sustainable. And so these companies are looking for smaller rounds, rounds typically from inside investors. And they're, being, they're hiring less people because they don't need to grow as fast. Before, it was, there was pressure just to grow. Now, investors poured $1.3 trillion in the startups over the last decade. And many, quote-unquote, unicorns, based on their valuation. But doesn't mean that they deserve those valuations. Venture capital funds raised $132 billion to invest in startups last year. That was double the amount from 2019 and six times the total raised a decade ago. But, and back then the number of funds were about a third of what it is today. So there's a lot more funds, a lot more money chasing after these companies and many of them got to absurd valuations. Software company startups, many of them reached 100 times Annual recurring revenue. Think about that. A hundred times the norm historically is about ten times. You're about ten x the multiple that these companies typically get. And what was most interesting is that this not small you know venture capital started with smaller wealthy people that were good and smart in business, and knew how to deploy the capital well, and find the right uh, entrepreneurs, the right uh, leaders, and they bet on the people, and he, he earned huge returns. But that has slowly moved up into very large funds, and those they call them crossover funds. And these are money managers that invest both in stocks in the public market as well as private companies. And they account for 70% of the dollars raised last year. So it's not this opaque market anymore. In the first three months of this year, though, crossover funds investments sank to the lowest level in six quarters. And what was the biggest one? SoftBank. As well as what was called Tiger Global, which is down 45% this year. All in all, venture capital investments fell 26%. In this first three months of of this year from the fourth quarter of last year. So quarter over quarter. So sentiment in the Valley is very negative and this is leading to layoffs. And this is where I think you're going to, you're going to double. I the real estate market in Silicon Valley is about to take a big hit because there's not cash outs from equity options that you're getting to buy houses for cash. There's layoffs, there's people moving out that still have a job and working remotely. All of these things, I think Silicon Valley is in for a rough time over the next few years. Let's go to Nick in Hayward, talk about P ratios.
0: Yeah, hi Justin. Uh, I wanna ask you, uh, it's a great show you have, Uh, thank you very much. How do you know when a stock is cheap enough? It's not just a PE ratio, I'm sure, no, no. because some PE ratios are single digits, some are double digits, as you know. Can mm-hmm. you explain something, please? Thank you. Well,
1: sure. Well, you're never. There's never one figure. Okay. Anybody that says you just use one, this one metric, and that's all you need, doesn't know what they're talking about. There's, there's always multiple metrics. Now, it's also. When you're analyzing the numbers, you want to look at them in relative terms, not just absolute terms. You might say, you know, an 8p ratio, oh, that sounds cheap, that's low. Well, does it historically just stay around an 8p ratio? What if it vacillates between 6 and a 10p ratio and it's at 8? your upside is that multiple to expand to 10. That's not great. Okay, so understanding where it historically trades at and where it's trading at today is important. But you probably don't want to use P either. You want to use something that is less manipulated. The E has always be manipulated via accounting rules. And the P is just looking at the market cap. Well, what about debt? Debt is important as well. How much debt does the company have? So that's why we like to look at enterprise value to cash flow, to EBITDA, things like that. Okay. I think those are better metrics that you want to use. And once again, comparing it to where it trades historically. And then versus its peers. You want to look within the industry. Similar type of companies. Are they, are are companies, you know, companies in this industry, are they typically trading at 25 times enterprise value to EBITDA? Or is it closer to 10 times? Because that's very important as well. 25 times might be cheap compared to how the industry typically trades. And you want to go through different cycles, you know, 10 plus years, looking at those figures. And then you want to look at the durability and growth of the business. Now has their business improved recently or deteriorated? Do you have faith that their business is going to endure for the next five, 10 years? Or do you see threats on the horizon? I'll give you an example. Visa and MasterCard. I think they trade at pretty high premiums. Well, what has emerged over the past decade or so? Cryptocurrencies, easier ways to transfer money, Venmo, Zelle, things like that. And am not say MasterCard Visa haven't grown, but do they deserve the multiple? When over the last decade... You know, they didn't have as much of that threat. These are things to think about. Now, it could be wrong, but that's the way I think about whether a company should be trading at the same multiple that it had been in the past. Okay? So, once again, there's multiple factors you have to consider. I know everybody wants this magic formula. Well, guess what? There's not a magic formula for... Knowing exactly when things are very or not. It's looking at things in relation and then understanding the backdrop. You can see, find something that's very cheap, but if, hey, it's a cyclical name and the economy is slowing, it can continue to get cheaper. And so you want to line up that inflection point of the economic backdrop that starts to help the businesses, the business you're looking at, and something that is ideally a reasonable value and that's what good quality management is about putting the odds in your favor when you buy things that are very expensive without you know just because you're buying bought into the story and the hopes and dreams of what the company could be well you get times like this where multiples come down and hey you bought it at absurd multiples And now it's coming down to reality. Okay. So it's really about having that discipline. And if you're having trouble building that discipline, if you need to know whether your portfolio is on the right track for the economic backdrop that we're in that I talked about at the top of the show, right? The demographic changes, deglobalization, ESG, all of these things that are driving newer trends that many are not used to. Well, I encourage you to reach out to myself or see at our company, KPP Financial, where we operate with the same philosophy as we do on this show, which is independent thinking and shared success. We want to bring you along in our success. And it's where we practice parallel investing, meaning we invest right alongside our clients. So, if you want to take advantage of our free portfolio view assessment via telephone or go to meetings, just send us a message to investtalk.com or call our office at 800 557 5461. We'd love to help you in any way. Next up, we will get back to the InvestTalk Voice Bank. So, hang on.
0: Hi, my name's Brayton. I was just calling. Uh, thank you guys for the show. Uh, it's doing an amazing job. I just had a question about a stock. Uh, it's called Wellpower, W-E-L-L-T-O-W-E-R, and the ticker is W-E-L-L. I know it's a REIT. Uh, I was just wondering if it's a uh, LLP or a LLC or if you get a K-1 for it. So this the financial show. Thank
2: you
1: are looking at Well Tower. And no, this is a REIT. And you don't get a K1 with a REIT. You get a K1 with a limited partnership. So a master limited partnership. Typically, those are companies that own distribution infrastructure for oil and gas. That's typically what an MLP does. There are some other types, but that's typically what they are. Now, this is a REIT, a real estate investment trust. And one thing you do have to understand, you're not filing a K1. But your dividends are not qualified. Now, what does qualified mean? It means that it's qualified for your uh, longer term capital gains rate, dividend rate, right? 15, 20%. Uh, you're taxed as your ordinary income, all that income that you're getting from the REIT. Now, the good thing is that unlike MLPs, which have K1s, and, and if you hold them within an IRA or a 401k, that can cause some kind of tax complexity that isn't fun. You can order hold a REIT in an IRA or 401k. And because those are vehicles that only have tax implications when you take the money out, they're actually kind of nice to hold within, once again, those 401ks and IRAs. So that's the difference between MLPs and REITs. Now this is WellTower. This is a healthcare REIT and they focus on they own senior housing, medical offices, skilled nursing facilities, etc. They have uh, they have por- uh, properties in Canada as well as the UK, uh, and they're actually one of the better run healthcare REITs out there. So, if I'm picking one healthcare REIT in the marketplace, this is probably the one. Question is, do you want to own healthcare REIT? That's not the question. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein, and we have one goal here is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So give me a call at 888 99Chart.
0: You are listening to Invest Talk. Every Friday on the program and the podcast, Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium Newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888
3: 99 chart. Hi, Steve or Justin. I
1: called, uh, I think back in January, about Chimera Investments CIM. I thought it would be a good play in a rising interest rate environment, but Justin kindly informed me that I really want to be aware of the spread of interest rates and that wasn't looking good for this company. So I sold it back at like thirteen fifty and now it's down. Approaching $9, but I've kept it on my watch list, and I'm wondering it might be a good play when interest rates have peaked whenever that happens. I was wondering if you could tell me how I might know when interest rates have peaked so that maybe I can get back into this. It seems like a solid company with a good dividend, so I would appreciate hearing your thoughts on the show. Thanks so much. All right, great question, and I'm glad I helped save you from some losses there, now down another, what, uh, 40% from where you sold it. But you're correct that what you're looking at was a mortgage REIT. Uh, now mortgage REITs typically are bad long-term investments. They, they, they loop you in with uh, high, uh, high returns, high, uh, dividends, but they're paying those dividends up out of your capital. They're issuing more shares They're taking on leverage. They're, they're just not great allocators of capital capital typically. So I wouldn't say. I would get excited about investing in these long term. Now, for a bounce, if it, when interest rates do peak, sure, uh, if you want to use that as as a vehicle, uh, a leveraged vehicle in that sense, sure. Uh, now, how do you know when interest rates have peaked? Well, depends on what type of interest rates you're talking about. Interest rates, what part of the curve are you speaking about? Now, in the mortgage rates, what's most important are those shorter term rates. Okay, because that's typically what they're borrowing at. They're like a bank where they're borrowing short. They're lending long in the mortgage market. And so that's that spread that we're talking about. And so what's most important for these type of names is short-term rates. So I look at SHY. And what's interesting here, and you can just look at the chart of SHY and CIM, they're very similar. CIM peaked in November and that's really when shy really started to accelerate to the downside uh which means that when short-term rates were going up the fastest now what's interesting is that over the past two weeks or so the shy started to catch a bid and is starting to make a series of higher highs and higher lows on a very short-term basis certainly hasn't broken any major trends But it is starting to indicate that, hey, the Fed is going to pivot. Remember, the short-term rates, these short-term rates are most correlated with Fed monetary policy, Fed prognostication about their future interest rate moves. And the fact that this is starting to go up means that short-term rates are starting to stall out here lose their momentum to the upside. And that's the first indicator to me that interest rates may be close on the short end for peaking. Now, longer term rates, a lot of it has to do with other factors, inflation, uh, Fed asset purchases, but shorter term rates have more to do with Fed moving interest rates up and down, less to do with their, their balance sheet movement. And then the dollar is also kind of stalled out here. And that's another indicator that maybe we're getting close to the end of the tightening cycle. Not to say they're not going to tighten more, but their uh, their forward guidance isn't going to be as hawkish going forward. Okay. Now, lastly, let's go to talk about SPACs a little bit. And what's interesting here is between now and the beginning of next year, first quarter of next year, there's about 280 SPACs that face deadlines to make some sort of acquisition. Now, these are special purpose acquisition uh, companies and they there were a litany of them over the past couple of years that went public. And most of them, 90% of them are below their SPAC price. Crazy, right? 90%. Nuts. And what this means is that these are bad investment vehicles. Historically, they've been bad investment vehicles. But when there's so much liquidity out there, money just flows into anything. And many of these companies made acquisitions at very high prices for their acquisition target. And they're just destroyers of capital. But these sponsors have spent millions of dollars and lawyers and things like that. And it costs them between 5 and $10 million to get these SPACs public. Through the underwriting, etc., and these are at risk of being a complete loss if by the by the cost of the the the, uh, the sponsor, the underwriter. And so you're going to see a lot of bad deals. You're going to see a lot of desperate desperate deals because part of a crappy deal is better than zero percent of no deal, right? And losing out on the entire uh, cost of going public. So you're going to see this is a, going to be an interesting trend. What happens here, and I definitely think uh, you're going to see more carnage in this backspace. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and be sure to rate and review. Independent thinking, share success. This is Invest Talk. Good night.
2: Such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein Pavlos, Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor.